listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. We are back, guys. Welcome to Ohio vs. the World. This is episode six, and today we're going to be talking about Ohio versus war. We are having an awesome time doing the podcast. Rate and review us. Share it with your friends. Everybody's been so cool on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher. Um, you know, if you have an idea for a show, uh, hit us up on the Facebook page or our email, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Um, we're on Instagram, Ohio V the World Podcast. So the response after those first five episodes has been so great. We're totally going to keep doing this. So thank you guys so much. The launch party last week was awesome. Um, thank you to Doc Robinson. Thank you to everybody who came out. Uh, Platform Brewing, who supplied the beer. Um, just an awesome party. And to share this, uh, my love of Ohio history with you guys has been super fun. And everybody's response to it has been great. So thank you. Today, we're going back to the, early, the late 1990s, 1998 to be exact, and we're going to talk about why Ohio stopped a war, how Columbus, Ohio stopped a war in the Middle East. You know, we, we started recording this last week, um, and then suddenly this episode has become very timely. Um, we're talking about cruise missiles being sent, bombing countries in, in the Middle East, um, as part of American policy. And of course, the situation, the 59 Tomahawk missiles we sent to Syria this week in response to their just horrible and yet another chemical attack on their own citizens. But it just kind of shows you that, that what we're going to talk about today was almost 20 years ago. And it just goes to show that our policy in the Middle East is, seems to be repeating itself. It's like a, you know an old CD that has you know scratches that's skipping, and we can't seem to get past it. This is 19 years later, the events that we're talking about today in February of 1998. We didn't mean for this episode to be so timely, but unfortunately it is. Another unique thing about episode six today, um, this will be probably the only podcast we ever do that doesn't have a guest. Um. We won't be talking to a fellow historian or journalist or professor, um, at least not for today's episode. Another cool thing that happened this week for the podcast, uh, we've just had so many listeners and so much interest since we launched a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were contacted by Todd Klismet, who's the director of community and government relations for the Ohio History Connection. You might remember it as the Ohio Historical Society uh, just north of downtown in Columbus, uh, on East 17th Avenue, right by Columbus Crew Stadium. It's a giant building right off I-71, um, and it is the center of Ohio history. Todd heard about the podcast. He wanted me to come in and meet everybody, talk about it, and talk about how they could be of assistance to the podcast, and they have so much unique stuff there. So they can't even keep it all on site. And I met Todd last week. He took me around, introduced me to everybody, um, and took me through all the exhibits, incredible Civil War exhibits, really cool Ohio archaeological uh, exhibits going on there. They've still got you know the Mastodon and the Mummy they had that I remember when I was a kid, and uh, Miss Ohio versus the World's Favorite, the Two-Headed Calf. I got a, I got a selfie with that. Um, it's ohiohistory.org is the website. It's an incredible place for kids, adults. Uh, just an awesome museum. Um, Todd took me around all the way up into the archives, into the stacks, and um, I was going through old newspapers, and um, just an incredible place. And they manage, you know, dozens and dozens of historical sites around the state, anything from the, you know, U.S., you know, Ulysses Grant's birthplace all the way to, you know, historical sites such as the Serpent Mound and other places like that uh, throughout the state of Ohio. So, 
It was a super cool day. I wanted to thank Todd and everyone I met, Jameson and Steven and Mr. Eckel and uh, Bert, the CEO, was really cool. Um, but everyone was so awesome. Lisa Wood, uh, looking forward to having her on a podcast. So again, everybody up there really knows their stuff about Ohio history. Uh, if I wasn't a lawyer, I would be sending in an application to work there right away. Um, every person I met, I had a 10, 15 minute discussion about a completely random Ohio history thing that I thought was interesting. And that person just happened to know everything about it. So it was really fun. Uh, I want to thank Todd and those guys again, ohiohistory.org. Go check that place out. I'm now a member. Um, they have the Ohio village there. It's kind of an 1800s, um, village that they put on with, uh, just really great place. Um, so I look forward to doing more work with them and collaborating with them as we kind of grow that relationship. Um, and being involved with the Ohio history connection, the Ohio history center more and more. Um, it's definitely something I want to do to, to kind of put Ohio history back out there and, and make it fun for the kids. So again, thanks Todd and go check them out. Um, at the Ohio History Connection, ohiohistory.org. Today we're talking about 90s U.S. foreign policy and Ohio's role in a, in a major event in that policy. Uh, Todd, who took me around the Ohio History Center, is actually a um, Gulf War veteran himself back in 1991. Our beer for the episode today, guys, is a Oval Beach from Land Grant Brewing in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I've enjoyed that they've got their beers at Ohio Stadium. If you go to a Buckeye game now, you can have a beer. Um, and they actually sold 5% of the beers during Buckeye games this year. Walt and those guys, they got a brewery in Franklinton, just outside of downtown Columbus. Um, and they also have a tap room at the John Glenn International Airport. So Oval Beach, it's like a golden ale, kind of a Belgian blonde, 6.5%. Uh, it's a new beer for them. They have a bunch of great IPAs and sessions and all kinds of stuff. This is a new one I'm enjoying. Um, and it's named after the Oval at Ohio State, which is where we're going today. But Oval Beach, basically when it's like 70 degrees in the spring, that first day people are throwing the Frisbee, laying out. The Oval is the center of Ohio State's campus. And it's uh, and they've got a great can of, of basically Midwesterners go nuts as soon as it gets warm. So Oval Beach, LandGrantBrewing.com. Check those guys out, Wall Keys and them, awesome dudes, uh, and they're blowing up. So, again, LandGrantBrewing.com, go check out their tap room. We're going to Ohio State's campus for today's episode, an event that happened on February 17, 1998, an event where Columbus stopped a war. Nobody really talks about it. We don't have a guest today because I'm the guest. I was there, and I think this is such an important event. It was an incredibly, incredibly amazing place to be. In February 1998, the United States was poised to go to war again with Iraq. Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq, had sent inspectors away from the United Nations, from the unscum inspectors. He had sent them away. President Clinton was going through a very rocky time. The talks of the Lewinsky scandal, all that stuff was starting to go off. His approval ratings were in the tank. And on February 17th, he sent his national security advisor, Sandy Berger, his secretary of state, Madeleine Albright, and his secretary of defense, William Cohen, to the campus of Ohio State for a televised town hall brought to you by CNN. And it was. It was a television event. That's why I was there. I had skipped school. I went with a, uh, a female friend who was a freshman at Ohio State. I was a junior in high school that year. And I had called off uh, school. I said I was sick. It was at 2 in the afternoon. And she had tickets to go basically watch the Clinton administration sell America a war. The only problem was we were not buying it. This country was poised to go to war. It was not, it was not hey, we've got this idea we might have to attack Saddam Hussein. It was basically a foregone conclusion that we were going to war. Incredibly, on that Tuesday afternoon, February 17th, a group of citizens stood up to the Clinton administration. That arena turned against the three people in the chairs in the center stage. And Ohio helped avert a war. I was not one of the protesters or question askers. I was simply a witness. I was just there to, because I thought it was a cool thing to go to. 
I wasn't for a war in Iraq. I wasn't against. I was completely indifferent. But by the end of that event, I was standing up and cheering. I did not think that this war was justified or necessary. The CNN International Town Hall on February 17, 1998, was one of the greatest displays of democracy this country has ever seen. A completely mismanaged debacle from the side of the Clinton administration. But it was nationally televised, internationally televised. It's in the title, CNN International Town Hall. Saddam Hussein watched it. Hosni Mubarak, who was the former president of Egypt, and President Mubarak was asked why he wouldn't support the airstrikes of the war against Iraq in 98, and he said, not even Ohio's behind it. That's what he said in Cairo when asked why he wasn't supporting the United States in their war against Iraq in February of 1998. Not even Ohio is behind it. It was a great quote. Uh, Mubarak, who's a pretty terrible dictator, just got out of jail. Um, But I got to give him props for that quote. So we're going to go back to 1998 today. We're going to talk about how Ohio stopped the war. We're going to talk about that crazy Tuesday afternoon, February 17th, 1998. We're going to go back to the the age of dial-up internet and cargo shorts and Britney Spears and Monica Lewinsky. And we're going to play you a ton of clips of that event and how crazy it was, the build-up to it. And we're going to focus on American Middle East policy, which is incredibly flawed. This is just another situation where they botched it but we're going to talk a little bit about about 90s american policy in the middle east and how it's gotten us where we are today which is nowhere so sit back we're going to take the shortest trip we'll probably ever take on this podcast in the wayback machine we're only going to take a trip of 19 years to talk about how ohio stopped the war we, the people of Columbus and Central Ohio and all over America, will not send messages with the blood of Iraqi men, women, and children. We You're not answering my question, Madam Albright. I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. What I am saying is that there needs to be consistent application of U.S. foreign policy. We cannot support people who are committing the same violations because they are political allies. That is not acceptable. Iraq will not be permitted to annex Kuwait. And that's not a threat, it's not a boast. It's just the way it's going to be. In order to talk about that event in 1998, we got to give you some background. How do we get to that point that we were had our guns, our cruise missiles, our our jets poised to bomb dozens and hundreds of targets in Iraq? Obviously, you have to go back to 1991, to the Persian Gulf War. Incredibly patriotic time in our country where the United States kicked Saddam Hussein and his Iraqi army out of the country of Kuwait, the small, oil-rich state of Kuwait. Saddam had invaded in August of 1990. Then-President George H.W. Bush started a giant coalition, including Arab countries, European countries. They set up camp in Saudi Arabia, and they destroyed the Iraqi army. So make clear that the United States has no quarrel with the Iraqi people. Our quarrel is with Iraq's dictator and with his aggression. Iraq will not be permitted to annex Kuwait. And that's not a threat, it's not a boast, that's just the way it's going to be. A giant, a month-long airstrikes against the, against the Iraqi army, the, the Republican Guard, as they were known. Kicked them out of Kuwait. Within 100 hours, General Norman Schwarzkopf and the American Army Coalition, hundreds of thousands of troops, ran the entire army back to Iraq. But they decided at the last minute, and this decision's always been controversial, not to take the road to Baghdad at that time. That's a decision I've grappled with for, for years. Whether we should have taken Saddam out then and there. He was at his absolute weakest. The army was destroyed. 
Saddam was for the taking. Unfortunately, George Bush decided that wasn't part of the mission. Maybe he was right. But the mission was to get them out of Kuwait with yellow ribbons across the country. Whitney Houston belting out the national anthem at the Super Bowl in 1991. But by February 1991, the United States and its allies had decimated the Iraqi army. Kuwait is liberated. Iraq's army is defeated. Our military objectives are met. Kuwait is once more in the hands of Kuwaitis in control of their own destiny. We share in their joy, a joy tempered only by our compassion for their ordeal. Tonight, the Kuwaiti flag once again flies above the capital of a free and sovereign nation, and the American flag flies above our embassy. No one country can claim this victory as its own. It was not only a victory for Kuwait, but a victory for all the coalition partners. This is a victory for the United Nations, for all mankind, for the rule of law, and for what is right. Saddam Hussein put down violently, I should add, uprisings in the north among the Kurds, in the south, in places like I said, Basra, where the Shiite majority thought they could take power. It was terrible. Iraq entered a ceasefire agreement, and part of that ceasefire agreement is how we got to the event in 1998, is Iraq was to disarm all of its chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. It's weapons of mass destruction. The UN resolution that ended the Persian Gulf War, the first Iraq war, I don't even know what we're going to call it in the future, that resolution required the Iraqis to not only disarm all their chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, it allowed for inspections anytime, anyplace, presidential palaces, laboratories, military facilities, whatever the United Nations wanted to do, their team, the unscun team, was allowed to go. But for seven years, Saddam had messed with that team. He wouldn't let him in certain sites. He'd say he needs two weeks. And by 1998, the frustration of those weapons inspectors became known across the world. He had blocked them from certain facilities. He had said no Americans can, can be inspectors on the United Nations team. It had reached a point where they could no longer do their job. And they'd been basically going through this for seven years. The United States had bombed Iraq before. In 1993, on a trip to Kuwait, former President Bush, who lost the election in 92 to President Clinton, was part of an assassination plot from the Iraqi intelligence service. It was uncovered, it was thwarted, and in response to that, President Clinton fired cruise missiles at the intelligence service, the ISI in Baghdad. In 1996, in response to Iraq's, basically, their meddling in the Kurdish civil war in the north, the bombing of the Kurds that, that Saddam Hussein had done, we also fired cruise missiles, Tomahawk missiles, from ships in the Persian Gulf. As part of the settlement, the resolution for the war, we'd set up a no-fly zone. Basically, only central Iraq was a place that Saddam and his air force could fly. We had control of the skies in the Shiite south and in the Kurdish north. For seven years, we had kept the system up in incredible sanctions, crippling sanctions to the Iraqis. They could only sell so much oil. There was a program called Oil for Food. But Saddam wasn't hurting. His people were hurting. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died due to those sanctions. It did not have the effect that we had hoped. Madeleine Albright was on 60 Minutes around this time, and she was asked by Leslie Stahl if she thought the sanctions were worth it. The hundreds of thousands of Iraqi citizens who had died, children, women. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Around the same time, a report serviced on a website called Drudge Report. 
said that Bill Clinton, the president, had had a sexual relationship with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. This was in January of 1998, one month before the event we're talking about today. And on January 26, about three weeks before that event, the international town hall that, that we're discussing, Bill Clinton finally addressed those rumors, and he made a famous statement. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. The media is whipped into a frenzy. Lewinsky Gate, it's all anyone's talking about. But Clinton had had issues like this in the past during the 92 campaign with Jennifer Flowers. He somehow survived during the New Hampshire primary. With Paula Jones, other women, rumors had surfaced, allegations, even court cases. People tended to believe that this happened. And Clinton's approval ratings, again, sink. At the same time this is going on, inspectors in Iraq are coming under incredible obstruction, even violence being forced away from the sites that they're trying to inspect. And it's very possible that Clinton saw an opportunity to change the attention of the media, the focus of the media. And that week, the day before the event, Clinton, his Secretary of Defense, William Cohen, who was at St. John Arena, they go to the Pentagon, Al Gore, the Vice President, and they all speak about how they need to stand up to Saddam Hussein. We'll play you some of those clips here in a second. But the way they're talking, this is happening. It's not, we think we should do this. We are going to war with Iraq again to degrade their ability to create weapons of mass destruction, to threaten their neighbors. These are the terms that they used. Here's some of those discussions the day before, February 16th, 1998, at the Pentagon. But Iraq must understand that our patience is not infinite. And at some point, we will have to act to reduce the menace posed by Iraq's weapons of mass destruction and to reduce Iraq's ability to threaten its neighbors. There should be no doubt Saddam's ability to produce and deliver weapons of mass destruction poses a grave threat to the peace of that region and the security of the world. And they will be all the more lethal if we allow them to build arsenals of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons and the missiles to deliver them. We simply cannot allow that to happen. The United Nations demanded, not the United States, the United Nations demanded, and Saddam Hussein agreed, to declare within 15 days, this is way back in 1991, within 15 days, his nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, and the missiles to deliver them. We had every good reason to insist that Iraq disarm. Saddam had built up a terrible arsenal, and he had used it. Not once, but many times in a decade-long war with Iran, he used chemical weapons against combatants, against civilians, against a foreign adversary, and even against his own people. What if he fails to comply and we fail to act, or we take some ambiguous third route, which gives him yet more opportunities to develop this program of weapons of mass destruction. And he can go right on and do more to rebuild an, an arsenal of devastating destruction. And someday, some way, I guarantee you, he'll use the arsenal. Let me be clear. A military operation cannot destroy all the weapons of mass destruction capacity. But it can and will leave him significantly worse off than he is now. If he seeks to rebuild his weapons of mass destruction, we will be prepared to strike him again. Let there be no doubt we are prepared to act.
February 17th, an event was set at St. John Arena, the old barn, the old basketball arena for the Buckeyes. It's been replaced since then by the new flashy Schottenstein Center. But the Clinton administration picked Columbus because they wanted a Midwest city. They wanted a place where patriotism was still the order of the day. They picked Columbus because they wanted to go to the heartland. What they didn't realize is Columbus in the 1990s was going through a giant growth spurt. It had become the 15th largest city in the country, the largest city in the state of Ohio. From 1980 to 1998, it had grown by 180,000 people. It's a progressive town. It's no longer a Republican town like Cincinnati is changing. If you listen to our episode, episode two, Why Ohio Picks the President, we talk about that with Kyle Condick. Columbus is now almost 66% Democratic. It's a progressive city fueled by the Ohio State University. People come here for school and they stay. There's other colleges. But war was not popular. People thought it was a, simply a sideshow. People had had it with our Middle East policy, the Clinton policy of sanctions and random bombings. But their choice of Columbus, Ohio was flawed. And if they were looking for a warm reception, they did not get it. My friend had gotten us two tickets. They were white tickets to the CNN International Town Hall, it said. There were two types of tickets. This was a poorly planned event. I've got to, I have to just stress that. The Clinton administration, their advance team, did a very poor job. Um, maybe it would have been different if the president had been there or the vice president, but the administration was not ready. First of all, the security was very lax in that they didn't have enough. They didn't expect 6,000 people, which is about what showed up, to show up. Most town halls you go to, you see on TV, you see maybe 100, 200 people. Five to 7,000 people showed up to this town hall event. We had white tickets, which meant we were sitting in the mezzanine upstairs. Only people, red tickets, which were screened, politicians, faculty of Ohio State, military, military families, uh, people who had basically questions to ask the administration. It was a staged event. You could tell. It was canned. We went upstairs about 2 o'clock. We didn't see a lot of protesters. You weren't allowed to bring in signs. I saw a guy get denied with a sign. You heard a little bit of chanting outside. But I was basically there to, to see democracy in action. And I apologize to my parents who will hear this, who will hear that I basically faked sick and called off of school that day. But it's not like I was just playing hooky. We got into the arena. The event was at 2 o'clock. And it was at 2 p.m. Eastern for a reason. This would make it basically prime time in Europe. It would make it about 9 o'clock, which I guess would be Iraqi prime time as well. People were watching in the Middle East. You can get CNN in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia. And I can guarantee you Saddam Hussein and his sons were watching that night. We now return to Showdown with Iraq, an international town meeting. Bernard Shaw from CNN and Judy Woodruff were the hosts. And they had no idea what they were about to get themselves into. They start, they introduce, you know, it's a CNN town hall like you just heard. And they start with Madeleine Albright, the first female secretary of state. And Albright can't even get through her statement. Suddenly there's a loud vocal minority in the arena. And they're shouting, one, two, three, four, we don't want your racist war. And she, she literally can't get through her statement. She's, you know, excuse me, I'd like to finish. Bernard Shaw, you know, yells at the crowd. But she can't even get through her opening statement. I knew something was going on there. Next up was William Cohen, the Secretary of Defense. I'll never forget. That's probably the funniest thing that happened that day. Cohen starts his statement. And people have quieted down a little bit. And he says, I'm from Maine. And in Maine, we, you know, he goes on the great state of Maine and 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 a guy a few rows away shouts, and people just started dying. He says, Maine sucks. <laughs> it was great. It was a great line. But he has struggles to get through. And, and you can realize that this is going to be a different type of event. 
and Cohen gets through his statement and he's laying out the case for war and he's speaking like war is imminent. He's not here to sell it. He's telling us that it's going to happen. Sandy Berger's up next. He seems like a pretty cool guy, I guess. But he said, he starts by saying, we have a divided house, I think. It was awkward. And you could tell they weren't ready for it. Berger barely gets through his statement. He shouted down and booed. And they start with the questions. The more time you take shouting, the more time you take away from people who have questions. Secretary, I do have a brief follow-up, and that is on this point. There are many countries that have these biological and chemical weapons. Six countries in the Middle East alone. You've stated why Saddam Hussein should be singled out, but it is puzzling to people to wonder why it's okay for these other countries to have biological and chemical weapons, but not... I think that it is clear that other countries have weapons of mass destruction. It is a question of whether there is a proclivity to use them. And Saddam Hussein is a repeat offender. And I think it is very important for us to make clear that the United States and the civilized world cannot deal with somebody who is willing to use those weapons of mass destruction on his own people, not to speak of his neighbors. Yes, sir. Germany. Go ahead, sir. Yes, I'd just like to uh, state uh, to Secretary Cohen, uh, Secretary Albright, and Mr. Berger, as a uh, member of the United States Services uh, in the Army, is that I wanted to let you know that I, I give my full support, although I am, it is my duty to do in the United States Army, but just to let you know that I fully agree with what you need to do, go ahead and do it if uh, a soldier member's life needs to be lost, let it start with mine. And it's not all tough questions and, and booing. There are some people there, the guy, the guy we just listened to from Germany, the soldier. But the first question was from someone they picked, and he says, and he makes a great point, you talk about concerns about Iraqi, um, you know, the Iraqi army threatening their neighbors. Yet I've never heard someone call for help in the region. Nobody seems to even support this war in the Middle East. Their neighbors don't want us to to go to war with Iraq. They didn't really have an answer for that. <laughs> they go to commercial, and you can see Shaw and Woodruff, the hosts, and, the, and everyone's scrambling. There's a guy down who's protesting right by the stage, and, and they throw him out. He later gets back to the podium to ask a question, which is incredible. They don't actually throw him out. They rough him up. They take him down the hall, but they let him back in to ask a question. We'll listen to his question later. But the security there was lax. They, these were ushers, Ohio State basketball ushers. My grandpa was an usher at Ohio State. They don't know how to handle a political, a political protest. And the questions get tougher. And you can see Berger and Albright getting frustrated. The chanting and the booing continues. Albright's laying out the case for war. People aren't buying it. Columbus is a smart town, and these people came with really good questions. And I got to give them credit. The Clinton administration, they put themselves out there. But CNN, a producer, walks up to the protesters upstairs, pretty close to where I was sitting, and basically begs them, hey, if you guys, I will let one of you ask one question. If you just, please be quiet. And he picks a guy wearing a tie, younger guy. He ends up being a substitute teacher out of Cleveland. And he walks up and has this exchange, and this is with Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State. And this is one thing I love about America. A random person is able to walk up to the head of our foreign policy and ask them a question and doesn't get shouted down, 
doesn't get pulled away by the secret police and takes her to task. All right, we have a questioner here. Gentleman in the white shirt, go ahead. Yes, I have a question for Secretary Albright. Why bomb Iraq when other countries have committed similar violations? Turkey, for example. Can I finish? For example, Turkey has bombed Kurdish citizens. Saudi Arabia has tortured political and religious dissidents. Why does the U.S. apply different standards of justice to these countries? say that uh, when there are problems such as you have described, we point them out and make very clear our opposition to them. But there is no one that has done to his people or to his neighbors what Saddam Hussein has done or what he is thinking about doing. Uh, I am very... About Indonesia. Well, you've turned my microphone Saddam Hussein has produced uh, weapons of mass destruction, which he's clearly not collecting for his own personal uh, pleasure, but in order to use, and therefore he is qualitatively and quantitatively different from every brutal dictator that has appeared recently, and we are very concerned about him specifically and what his plans might be. You have a Thank you. What? My microphone is off. There we are. What do you have to say about dictators of countries like Indonesia, who we sell weapons to, yet they are slaughtering people in East Timor? Boom. Roasted. He says some stuff about Israel I don't completely agree with, but this guy is running circles around the Secretary of State. Why do we support them? Why do we bomb Iraq when it commits similar problems? examples of things that are not right in this world and the United States is trying <laughs> I uh, really am surprised that people feel that it is necessary to defend the rights of Saddam Hussein when what we ought to be thinking about is how to make sure that he does not use weapons of mass destruction I'd like to What I am saying is that there needs to be consistent application of U.S. foreign policy. We cannot support people who are committing the same violations because they are political allies. That is not acceptable. We cannot via violate U.N. resolutions when it is convenient to us. We You're not answering my question, Madam Albright. Shouts of no war continue. Berger tries to lay out their support for opposition groups. We haven't supported opposition groups. They've all been crushed by the Iraqi army and Saddam Hussein. He talks about our support for these opposition groups and regime change. And the protesters start, they start chanting BS, BS, although they're saying the actual words. And the man who was thrown out earlier steps to the podium. I don't know how he got back in. It's a huge mistake by security. But the guy who got thrown out trying to ask a question earlier gets back to the podium. And he represents Central Ohio. He says that we won't support this war. The people of Columbus will not be puppets for your policy. This is not an open forum. It is a media event staged by CNN. We should... If this, if this were a town meeting, if this were, if this were a school board meeting or some other town meeting in a democracy, people would be allowed to make statements as well as ask questions. How can these people sleep at night? Because we draw, we are not going to be able to stop Saddam Hussein. We are not going to be able to eliminate his weapons of mass destruction. All of them. President Clinton admitted it. All he wants to do, Clinton said, was send a message to Saddam Hussein. If he wants to send a message. We, the people of Columbus and Central Ohio and all over America, will not send messages with the blood of Iraqi men, women, and children. If we want to deal with Saddam, 
I suggest, sir, that you study carefully what American foreign policy is, what we have said exactly about the cases that you have mentioned. Every one of them have been pointed out, every one of them we have clearly stated our policy on, and if you would like, as a former professor, I would be delighted to spend 50 minutes with you describing exactly what we are doing on those subjects. Secretary. Secretary Albright had already said she was willing to meet with some of you after the forum. Let's respect that. The more time you take shouting, the more time you take away from people who have questions. And I can assure you from my research and um, you know, firsthand accounts, Secretary of State Albright did not stick around for 50 minutes to speak with people about the policy and the intricacies of U.S. foreign policy in the 1990s. They hightailed it the hell out of there. Their trip to Columbus, a trip that they thought would be to a sympathetic, patriotic, heartland city to show the rest of the world that the United States was just that, united had failed miserably. The criticism of this event comes from both sides, all over the globe, Republicans, Democrats. It was called, a European ally called it a tactical mistake that might have inadvertently given Saddam Hussein good cheer. One diplomat from an Arab country said that it showed a deep division in the United States about our foreign policy in the 1990s. John Boehner, then a younger Ohio congressman, probably still orange, um, but Boehner from Westchester, Ohio, he had a great quote. He said, if the Clinton administration's goal was to send a message to Saddam via CNN, then this was an unmitigated disaster. This is a matter of global security, international peace, and they turned it into the Oprah Winfrey show. Not surprisingly, it did not work. And we talked about earlier, you know, President Mubarak of Egypt saying that not even Ohio is behind this war. So why can they, you know, why should they expect him to be behind it? The town hall ends. The newspaper headlines the next day: debacle in Ohio. Clinton team can't sell the war. At the same time, Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the UN, is in Iraq trying to broker some kind of deal to avoid the war. He's able to get enough concessions that the Clinton administration actually decides not to bomb them. Columbus and Ohio has stopped a war. Here's President Clinton talking about the deal with Saddam that was on Saturday, which would have been four days after the event. The United States remains resolved and ready to secure by whatever means necessary Iraq's full compliance with its commitment to destroy its weapons of mass destruction. No one seriously believes that uh, there can be a breach of this agreement by Iraq without serious consequences. To secure the safety of the people in the region, the neighbors of Iraq and others that might be menaced in the future by its weapons of mass destruction, the United States and hopefully all of our allies would uh, have the unilateral right to respond at a time, place and manner of our own choosing. The biggest threat, uh, both to its neighbors and to others, by indirection, which is the chemical, the biological, and the nuclear weapons program. What we want here is to secure the safety of the people who would be exposed to chemical and biological weapons and to whatever nuclear capacity that he might still have. The United States, because of our position in the world, is called upon to bring its power to bear when it's important to do so. We share a strong commitment to curtailing the threat of weapons of mass destruction in general and to continuing the work in Iraq. Again, let me say, I know I don't need to beat this dead horse, but I think it's worth repeating one more time. I see this issue with Iraq in the larger context of the threat I believe will be presented to the world for the next few decades 
from biological and chemical and perhaps even, God forbid, small-scale nuclear weapons. We really should say in the description of this episode that this is when Ohio stopped the war briefly. Because just 10 months after these events that we discussed, in December of 1998, President William Jefferson Clinton ordered the bombing of Iraq called Operation Desert Fox, a multi-day bombing campaign from sea and from air of all kinds of different hundreds of targets with us and the British of bombing Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Many people were killed. The objectives, again, were that Iraq had sent away inspectors. But really, Desert Fox, Operation Desert Fox, I believe, was simply a sideshow. The bombing took place the night before President Clinton's impeachment uh, hearings were to begin in the United States Senate. One day before, and since the bombings took place, the Senate actually postponed those hearings. But they postponed those hearings for 24 hours. Clinton bought himself one day with a war in Iraq. Obviously, he was found to be Not guilty for his perjury and other high crimes and misdemeanors associated with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Him being untruthful to not just the American people, but also to a grand jury investigation by Kenneth Starr, the special prosecutor. On February 12th, 1999, the U.S. Senate voted for the second time on the impeachment of a president. Andrew Johnson previously in in 1868. Johnson had escaped impeachment by just one vote. Impeachment in the United States of a president requires a two-thirds vote of the United States Senate. And the Republicans quite simply didn't even have close to those numbers. The two votes for the two counts of impeachment, one was 55 not guilty, 45 guilty. And the other was 50-50, a 50 guilty, a 50 not guilty vote. Clinton would survive the impeachment. Operation Desert Fox, he ordered one day before those impeachment hearings, will always live as kind of the wag the dog moment in American history. It's a 90s movie from that same time where the government is in trouble and makes up a war in the Balkans. And this seemed like a a fictitious made up war as well as far as the reasoning and certainly the timing of these airstrikes in Operation Desert Fox. Clinton explains his actions to the country. To strike military and security targets in Iraq. They are joined by British forces. Their mission is to attack Iraq's nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons programs and its military capacity to threaten its neighbors. Their purpose is to protect the national interest of the United States and indeed the interests of people throughout the Middle East and around the world. Saddam Hussein must not be allowed to threaten his neighbors or the world with nuclear arms, poison gas, or biological weapons. Heavy as they are, the cost of action must be weighed against the price of inaction. If Saddam defies the world and we fail to respond, we will face a far greater threat in the future. Saddam will strike again at his neighbors. He will make war on his own people. And mark my words, he will develop weapons of mass destruction. He will deploy them and he will use them. Because we're acting today, it is less likely that we will face these dangers in the future. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading
Today's book recommendation is America's War for the Greater Middle East. It's by Andrew Basevich. Basevich is a retired army colonel, fought in some of these battles that he talks about, and basically lays out America's entire policy and our actions, military actions, political actions in the Middle East since 1979, since the Iranian hostage crisis. He lays out how basically nothing we've done has worked. Basevich is like me. He disagrees entirely with our policy in the Middle East. And he lays out reasons why it's failed and different things we've tried that haven't worked. And he's a very vocal critic of our policy. I feel very similar to him. The issue with Basevich and with myself is I don't have an answer. What is the answer for our policy in the Middle East? Because what we're doing now has not worked. Check that book out. It came out last year. It's really, really good. Um, and it talks about this Operation Desert Fox that you know went down the bombing of Iraq in December of 98. That's going to do it for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Like I said, share, rate, review the show. Tell your friends about it. Um, we're really looking forward to some episodes we have coming up. We have a lot of interviews lined up here in April. Um, and we're going to get a lot of new episodes out to you. So thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.